0: dad said something to me a long time ago. He said, whatever you're going through now is preparing you for something in the future. No matter how difficult things are right now, you're being prepared for something in the future. 1995 taught me how to get through 2008. And interestingly enough, 2008 taught me how to get through what we're going through right now. What you're going through right now is gonna get you through something else. What you are in the midst of right now is most certainly a lesson. Eyes wide open, learn the lesson. Because when you get presented with that next challenge, those lessons that you've learned today, how to communicate, how to educate, how to console, how to counsel, how to give people faith when they don't think that they can do it, how to make people understand that there may be a different way than what we're accustomed to, that's gonna take us to another place. Learn these lessons now because they'll serve you well in the future.
1: Those are the sage words of Chris George, a leader who is full of lessons. Among other things in his life, Chris has mentored under Cutco Vector West CEO, Bruce Goodman, manufactured his own success in business from the ground up and dealt with significant personal trauma involving his young son. Along the way, Chris built his company, nearly lost it in the financial crisis of 2008, and has rebuilt a business which boasts over 2,000 employees and will exceed $25 billion in volume this year. This is a man who has experienced life's ups and downs, has learned the lessons that came his way, and has the wisdom to eloquently share his stories and his insights with the world today. This conversation will make you laugh, might make you cry, and will most definitely make you think. I'm deeply honored and so grateful to be able to bring an incredible guest to you today, Mr. Chris George. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world welcome to the podcast everybody i am deeply honored to have a fantastic guest today his name is chris george chris is the founder president and ceo of cmg financial which is a privately held mortgage bank they're headquartered in california although they conduct business in all 50 states chris is one of the most notable leaders in the mortgage industry he has served as the chairman of the mortgage bankers association and chairman of the uh, MBA's Diversity and Inclusion Committee. He has testified before Congress. He has met with leaders from the housing industry. He also established the CMG Foundation for his philanthropic endeavors. Chris happens to own a 1,000 acre hilltop property in the San Francisco Bay Area where he lives and which also operates as a cattle and bison ranch Uh, he sold Cutco almost 40 years ago and what's really really cool about this is that Chris's original manager was one Mr. Bruce Goodman yes so there will be some stories that will happen today Chris has been able to parlay his experiences into a level of success that uh, is as great as any of the amazing guests we've ever had on this podcast and so as I said, I'm deeply honored, really fired up to hear some stories and lessons here. So Chris George, thanks so much for making time for the podcast.
0: Yeah, and thanks for having me on, the, uh, on your show. And it is, a, it is a delight to be back talking about Cutco after all of these years. We've been an owner of the product all of this time. So it's not as though we have stepped away from quality craftsmanship of that product. But I will tell you, it is a delight to be part of the show today.
1: Yeah. Outstanding. Well, I've been really looking forward to getting together with you in this way and and having this conversation. So take us back to when you first got started selling Cutco. Well, I think it's
0: only appropriate, given my involvement with uh, Bruce Goodman, is to tell you about the very first day I ever met him. Uh, (laughs) So you can imagine times were different some 40 plus years ago, how Cutco in the early, early days of its origin did and sold and taught the process, there are a number of things that were, I would imagine, that still exist today with respect to the teachings that Cutco puts into its curriculum, not the least of which is that, you know, what you put in is what you get out and that there's a lot of integrity and honor associated with selling a product that is so well-renowned and so well-made and has such durability. I had found myself in the midst of not sure what I wanted to do in my life. I was just having recently gotten out of high school was thinking that maybe I would finish my education and get some money stored up. And I wanted to be able to get a job to which I could do something that wouldn't really require much effort of thought. And I answered an ad in the newspaper about a delivery job. And so I I went to this small little office off of Clayton Road in Concord, California, and I went up to the the suite, and the door was closed. I went to open the door. It was locked, and so I knocked on the door, and the door opened up about that much, and I could see Bruce Goodman behind the door, and he said, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I'm here for the interview, and I could see other people in there, and he said, "Uh, you're late. You have to come back on Monday. And I said, no, I'm not. (laughs) I'm not late. I'm not late. He goes, you got to come back on Monday, close the door in my face. And so (laughs) I was so mad about that, that I said, by golly, I'm, I don't even care if I don't get the job, I'm going to come back and I'm going to, get there and it reminds me of one of the many many things my father told me about about business and in life and one of the things he taught me was early is on time on time is late and late is never acceptable now Mm -hmm. i mean that i was on time Uh, bruce will tell you that i was maybe 30 seconds late I was there a full half hour early on Monday, and I was sitting in that room, and I could tell that Bruce was aware that I was the guy that'd come in on Friday because he made an extra effort to explain to me the opportunity that existed, and I fell in love with sales that day. I never thought of myself as a salesperson. I never thought of myself as as a person that could talk about the value of a particular product, regardless of what the product is. I mean, today I'm I'm a mortgage guy, right? So I, I provide financing for people to buy homes or to stay in their home. And yet back then, what I was learning early on were some truly tried and tested philosophies in the process of storytelling, in the process of explaining a product, eliminating an objection before it's an objection is known as a sales point. All of those things that that are stuck in my head that I even still teach today to my employees I learned one Monday afternoon at a small, a small suite in Concord, California, by Bruce Goodman.
1: Wow, that is so cool. What was it like? Like, tell us about uh, the young Bruce Goodman.
0: Well, although I imagine Bruce probably doesn't want this to be terribly well publicized, but there was, <laughs> it was a different time, an earlier stage in Bruce's life. I will tell you an interesting story that sticks in my mind. It's one that I think is useful for your listeners and also i have told this story a number of times in my own organization because i think it tells the story of how often we find that sometimes adversity requires us to give up a little bit too early right so you see something and you talk yourself out of it It reminds me of listening to individuals who have gone through the buds training the seals training down in Southern California and San Diego. And a lot of there's a lot of books that's written about how to get through the SEALs training, but one of the common denominators of getting through that kind of training is the ability not to look too far in the future, to really focus on what you have at the moment and not talk yourself out of being able to make it through whatever it is you have to make it through there was a period of time where they call hell week which is basically sunday night till friday night you don't sleep much maybe an hour or so a night and they put you through a lot of different maneuvers that are designed to essentially get you to convince yourself you have to give up Mm -hmm. so within that realm they talk about not focusing on the next 15 minutes or the next two hours, but really they talk about focusing on the next step in the run rather, or the next 10 feet. In the run don 't focus on what you 're going to do on Thursday when it 's Monday. focus on what you 're doing on Monday and focus th- intensely on the things you have to do to get to the next few minutes and the next few hours right it takes me to this story this again was a different time in in petco where you would be out prospecting, making appointments uh, with an effort, so you would be literally knocking on doors, making appointments. And then you would go back after those appointments and show the different items you had to sell, whether it was um, the knives or the cookware or even the stoneware or the china. You had your big case and you went out and did your thing. And I recall walking along in this large apartment complex in Walnut Creek, California with Bruce. And we were walking along the sidewalk and this woman was walking toward us. It was probably about 530 at night, maybe six o'clock at night. And Bruce says to me, hey, prospect this person. And I said, I don't know. And uh, he goes, why? And she's walking toward us. And I said, she just doesn't have a look on her like she wants to buy anything. And so we walk past her and Bruce stops and turns around and says, excuse me, hey, listen, I you know have, have some very nice things. I'd be interested to talk to you about it. She goes, oh my gosh, I just moved into this apartment. I have no cookware, and I love to cook. Could you please come up? And so we go grab our stuff, and we go up. And we were probably there for three hours. And I'm not sure Bruce had anything left to sell that that woman didn't buy. I'm not kidding. <laughs> probably 1981-ish, and I'll bet you she purchased more than 10 or 15 thousand dollars worth of items and wow! the entire time i was sitting there quiet seething over the fact that this that i said this person has the look that she doesn't want to buy anything and of course bruce took the opportunity to step forward and do something (laughs) walk back in silence to his toyota corolla and we sit down he rolls down a window and he lights up his cigarette and he kind of goes blows and he goes yep She sure had a look like she didn't want to buy anything. (laughs) What that lesson told me is that all too often we talk ourselves out of just asking for the sale, just to Mm -hmm. ask, not even the second or third time. I think we talk ourselves out of just the simple fact of saying, hey, would you be interested in knowing more about this? And I'll tell you, that lesson hasn't been lost on me. I think that a lot of people lose sight of the fact that you think that the experience of your life are similar in nature to the experience of other people's lives. And because of that, you make a decision that at 5.30 or 6 o'clock at night, this person's just too tired to listen to a discussion about knives and cookware and, and stoneware. Versus someone who says, no, this is an important thing to me, and I would love to hear about it. And so I've told myself I wouldn't talk myself out of the sale any longer.
1: And I learned that lesson the hard way from Bruce Goodman. (laughs) That's awesome. That's so cool. Great story. I do think that a lot of like pain and anguish in life comes from assuming other people think the same way we do, when in reality, they often don't right? And that it's important to be inquisitive and to ask the right questions and to get to know what someone is thinking. That applies to a whole lot more than just selling, but uh, a lot of other things as well. Life in general. I
0: think a lot of people sit there and say, you know, they are there's a little bit of a a misnomer here about a couple of rules that we're learning earlier in life. One of them is uh, the golden rule. And of course it's an important rule and it's not he who has the gold makes the rule, but generally most major legitimate religions occupy about treating others the way you want to be treated, right? Do unto others as you would have done unto you. And that's a great rule, right? But sometimes and many times treating others the way you want to be treated is great but it may not be what the way they want to be treated. And right. so in our own organization, we created this thing called the platinum rule and the platinum rules do unto others as they would have done unto themselves. In other words, treat other people the way they want to be treated, not necessarily the way you want to be treated, but treat others the way they want to be treated. And of course that begs the question, well, how do you know how other people want to be treated? And that's a simple answer. You have to ask, Yeah, how often would you like me to communicate with you? And in what way would you like me to communicate with you? Do you want me to send you an email or a text or a phone call? Would you like to meet in person? Would you like me to communicate with you in writing? Would you like to communicate with me face-to-face? Oftentimes, we get that communication thing wrong because we don't first establish What is the preferred method of communication? Because almost all things in life either evolve or devolve into a form of communication. And so, and sales without good communication isn't sales. I mean, if you can think of it this way, confused prospects rarely buy. People that don't understand what they're getting rarely buy something. And when they do buy something they didn't think that they got, they almost always are unhappy with it. So, Mm -hmm. It's critically important that someone understands what it is that they are getting, and you do that via the proper form of communication. And then the other lesson that that particular episode taught me of the who, what, where, when, why, and how, ask why. If you ask why, it's the essence of the mission, if you will. It's the essence of why we're doing what we're doing. I make a joke, and it's sort of a funny joke, and that is with the last name George, it's incumbent upon me to be curious. So I ask a lot of questions, right? (laughs) And so I encourage you and your listeners and the folks that might be, that you work with on a day-to-day basis, be really curious, because there's nothing wrong with asking why. Why is the way dumb rules get out of your business? Why do we do it this way, Dan? Well, because we've always done it this way. Well, that's a dumb answer. The better answer is, Maybe we should take a deeper look at why we do something a particular way, because there might be a better way that's quicker, possibly more efficient at both economically from a speed and also from an economic side. And lastly, it might the change might provide a better customer and consumer experience. Always continue to ask why. And I know I may be saying this. This episode, which was one of the most embarrassing moments of my time with Bruce early on, right? But it was such a springboard moment for me to be able to internalize that and realize I didn't ask why. I let my own mind convince myself. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, I missed an opportunity. Listen, I don't mind getting beat. If you're better at something than me, like... Play tennis, and you play tennis with somebody who's just better than you, or racquetball, or or whatever sport it is that you play. If you play someone's better than you and they beat you at that sport, that's okay. But every time I played somebody who's better at me in a particular sport, I always get better. I may lose, and I lose a lot, by the way. But I my game comes up a little bit. Right. That particular day, I missed an opportunity. And, and listen, as you well know, opportunity knocks about this loudly. It's very quiet. And if you're not tuned in, if you're not perceptive to listening to that quiet knock, you'll miss opportunities and While it sounds like a funny story, right, Bruce early on, he had this innate ability to see things, and it didn't seem to bother him that he would take advantage of that opportunity that presented to him. That's a lesson you know each of us gets skills that were given to just because we're born. That's a very valuable skill
1: to have. And that's one that he taught me early on. Awesome. Awesome. That's so cool to hear. And I know you became an assistant manager with him. So you were like his right-hand guy in the office. And I was told I was told, I should ask about two legendary figures in Cutco lore of those days. Who are monk van arsdale and nick uloa well monk and
0: nick are mythical fig- figures <laughs> <laughs> are, they are people that we that when bruce and i were late at night at the denny's restaurant in chilpen single parkway in pleasant hill talking about the day's activities along with a couple of other early on participants in the Cutco world, one a fellow by the name of Chris Hall. And I learned something listening to those guys. I wasn't a super scholastic guy out of high school. I never went to college and my grades out of high school were not great. It's not a I'm not trying to be proud about that. I wouldn't say, hey, you know, have your kids get bad grades out of school and, you know, end up doing whatever you end up doing. I have four boys. I wanted all four of them to go to college and graduate from college because I wanted them to have the experience that not everybody is exactly the same as they are, that the diversity that comes to any college in America or for that matter around the world is important for you to understand that some people think differently than you, right? And that's okay, by the way. You don't have to agree with everybody's thought process. You could at least understand it, maybe. I didn't have any of that. So my acclimation to all of that was via Chris Hall and Bruce Goodman. And it was interesting to me, in high school, I wasn't great at math. And you might argue then, you say you're not good at math, but you're in the mortgage industry, which is like predominantly math, right? You know, that that particular paradox. But early on, listening to Bruce and to Chris talk about how they calculated things in their head made sense to me. And while it was late at night, we would hang out till 11 and 12 and 1 and 2 o'clock in the morning talking about a wide variety of things, present day events all the way to historic events. I learned early on that I needed to supplement what I didn't learn in high school. I needed to supplement that another way. And so I, I became a voracious reader. I still read multiple, multiple books. I still read books, even though I know you can read a book on a, on a tablet and all that. So I like the feel of a book in my hand. and so yeah, Same here. I learned that these guys knew things that I needed to know. And I was at a disadvantage while they had conversations about subject that I hadn't a clue about. And I had to sit there and did not mind listening and learning. But I knew at some point I would want to participate. And so those early days about joking about Nick and Monk and talking about what were important things of the day, silly things of the day, uh, taught me another lesson that you know you never know what you don't know. You know, you're constantly always a student of life. Don't ever stop learning. Have this insatiable itch of and this is that curiosity component. It doesn't really matter what it is. Just constantly learn about things. and they, they may have no bearing to your day-to-day lives, and oftentimes they don't. But they teach you how to remain curious and they exercise a portion of your brain that's really important and that's your memory. You know, your memory is like every other muscle in your body. It just requires you to work it. In my mind, I think that if you have a really good memory, I think you have a leg up on competition because you can remember the things they said and that doesn't get you in trouble or things they said that might give you an advantage on how you can relate to somebody. So those were those early days of Cutco. I'm telling you that there are so many things that are a bedrock of our organization. Some, we just celebrated our 27th year in business. And this is my 33rd year running my own company and my 38th year being in the mortgage industry. And I can tell you, there's so many things about our company that if you followed them all the way back to their origin, so many of them would find them in these early days of Cutco. I mean, it just, it's, it's weird to say that because people, I think, can say, well, I mean, for goodness sakes, it's a knife company. It's a kitchenware company. It was far more than that for me. And I think, actually, it's far more than that for the people that work in it today. We hire a lot of people that have gone through the Cutco training. Maybe it's just a summer maybe it's more than just a summer but there's a sense of organization and there is a a sense of order that goes through the cutco training that is clear with some of the people that we have hired that have gone through that i can Mm -hmm. see it and i can ask them and there is a brotherhood sisterhood of people that say oh yeah i went through that and i did that for a summer and here's what i was able to do so i think that it's bigger than than the sum of its parts if that's possible
1: Yeah, indeed. That's definitely uh, what we all believe here for sure. Well, tell us a little bit about the journey of building your company. Like, How would you get into the financial industry and how have you built uh, CMG?
0: Well, I was learning that hanging out with Bruce Goodman 22 hours a day was not terribly conducive to retaining a relationship with my girlfriend who happens to now be my wife. So I had to come up with a better balance in my life and so I, uh, there was a guy that worked at Cutco that had gone to work for household finance and see if I was interested in going to work there. I interviewed there. I had decided I wanted to finish my education, so I was going to finish up my AA and go down to school in Southern California somewhere. I walked out of household finance and the door banged to the suite next door, which happened to be beneficial finance. So I interviewed there, too, because the guy was asking me what I was doing. He said, well, how much that, that was household offering you? And I said, $795 a month. And he said, well, we'll pay you $800 a month. And so I went to work for Beneficial because then flex. <laughs> <laughs> and I worked at Beneficial learning the mortgage industry. And I knew nothing about the mortgage industry. I, I thought a deed of trust was something like a deed of hope or a deed of chastity or a deed of uh, just a good deed. I learned that early on that Beneficial style of sales was exactly the opposite of the Cutco side of sales. Meaning that they said, you know, we wait here and if somebody needs us, they'll come to us. And that didn't work for me and I didn't have anything else to do. And I'd come off this high octane sales world. And so on weekends, I had nothing else to do. So I'd go out and sign up hot tub companies and room addition companies and different folks that needed financing for their product. And then on Monday morning, they'd all come rolling in and my manager would be looking at me like, who are you? And so they promoted me quickly to the installment sales contract manager. And so I suddenly began making those loans. And then uh, a few days after my 21st birthday, they promoted me to my first management job. I was the youngest branch manager ever at Beneficial, and they had this goal to make me the youngest regional manager, and then on my way up to the youngest group president. I probably would have stayed there. Just philosophically, their culture wasn't my culture. And again, there's nothing, nothing wrong with Beneficial. There's a lot of folks that went through Beneficial and got... A heck of a good training, both inside our industry and outside of our industry. But the thing that I was challenged with with beneficial is that it remains somewhat of a good old boys club. That they uh, they weren't not terribly a diverse organization, and there weren't a lot of women at the top. There weren't a lot of people of color at the top, and I didn't like that. And so I left and started my own company I'm in 1988. In my fourth bedroom in dublin california as a mortgage broker Um, i sold that company in 1993 and then started cmg in my garage we had moved from dublin to pleasant started cmg in my garage with five other employees three of which still work for me and we started cmg in my garage and grew it to where we are today today we lend in every single state in the United States. We have multiple channels of our company. And we'll probably do somewhere between 25 and $30 billion this
1: year as a company. Wow. That is incredible.
0: It's wow. Shocking.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. Still,
0: I still wonder how a guy like me ended up in a chair like this, but, you know, whatever.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I know you earned your way into that chair, and I'm sure it was not easy Can you tell us about some of the biggest challenges that you faced? So you understand we
0: had a housing crisis in America around 2007 and 2008. It is as close to a near-death experience you can have. The only thing that rivals that is that when my youngest son was born, he was born with a liver disorder that put him on the transplant list when he was two weeks old. And by the time he was seven months old, it was pretty clear that we were not going to get a pediatric liver. And as a result, in March of, uh, 1995, my son was about five months old. We got paged. This is back before cell phones. We got paged that there was a potential organ available in the geography that was our geography. And so we'll go flying across the Bay Bridge to, to UCSF, which is where we were, which is a phenomenal hospital. And we get paged again to say that, uh, that liver is no longer uh, available. It, to take you down memory uh, lane, in March of 1995 was the Alfred P. Murrow bombing in Oklahoma City with uh, mm-hmm. Timothy McVeigh. And the bottom floor of that building, there was a daycare. Nursery, yeah, daycare. And back then, this is a, there's been a lot of advancement in transplants since then, but back then, you had to get a pediatric organ for a pediatric recipient. Today, they don't do that any longer. They can take a an adult organ and pare it down to a, a child. But back then, you had to kind of have like kind to like kind. And so my wife, Teresa, said to me, uh, I don't know that I can keep doing this much longer. And I said, what do you mean by that? And she said, so we're waiting around for somebody else's kid to die. So ours doesn't. And so a couple of days later, we talked to the doctors at UCSF and asked them, is there any other way that this works? And Teresa said, well, why can't I give him part of my liver? And then whether this is fate, whether this is luck or karma, if it's a belief and being blessed, if it's a belief in something more than what you can see, whatever it is, it just turns out that the world expert in what's known as living-related transplants happens to be at UCSF Medical Center at that time. And he explains to us that there is a possibility that We could take a portion of somebody's liver who has the same blood type, remove their liver and take my son's liver out and put their liver in him. So what they call a cadaver patient, which is somebody who's passed away. This is a living related transplant. It's very popular for kidneys. And so on May 1st of 1995, my wife went through a 19 hour operation that took a third of her liver out. Um, And my son went through a 22 hour operation where they took his liver out and put hers in. He was seven pounds uh, when it, when that operation occurred. It was such an unusual thing that the uh, hospital provided a, uh, a full-time photographer prior to, during, and post-operatively. In fact, somewhere in some of the, the medical journals someplace in San Francisco, there's the the case of Adam George. If you fast forward today, Adam is a a 25-year-old prolific surfer. He also happens to be a loan officer in our company. Sold uh, Cutco. Yeah, he, <laughs> he sold Cutco for a while. He took the words <laughs> right out of my mouth. So he's an alumni. And we've gone through a couple of scares along the way, but that probably was the biggest one outside of what happened in 2007 and eight and watching on uh, my company almost go out of business. I had made the decision back then that I was not going to shut the company down. I borrowed millions of dollars to keep the company alive because I knew even if the company ultimately failed, I'd spend the rest of my life paying people back. That was just gonna be my plan. Right. And late in 2008, the Federal Reserve started buying mortgage-backed securities and AIR came back into our industry. And from that point until maybe 2014 or 15, we paid every single penny back. And it was millions of dollars. You know, today, we're a couple of thousand employees. Like I said, we're across the United States. We're very militant about our culture. I want to make sure that we do things right by way of our customer and anyone who intersects with our company anywhere, from a business colleague, a a business associate, a vendor, a business partner, all of them are elevated to the level of customer
1: i know that your company tagline is uh, experience extraordinary and uh, i was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that or any of the other values or concepts that you hold closest as a leader
0: we later on took on a tagline we've had this tagline now for years and that It goes every customer, every time, no exceptions, no excuses. And the experience extraordinary is our company tagline. But every customer, every time, no exceptions, no excuses means that I want your experience to appear as though you're the only customer I'm working with this year. I want you to sit there and say to me, wow, uh, that is like no other experience I have ever had positively. It was smooth. I never felt I was in the dark. Everything you told me would happen did happen. If there was a hiccup. There was an opportunity to over When I first started as a loan officer, unknowingly, I adopted a mentality that served me well, and that was, understand, here's a guy that, I got out of high school, wasn't sure what I wanted to do, didn't have very good grades, needed to go to college, ended up taking this job with Bruce, ended up making a lot of money, but was working a lot of time. So I gave that up to kind of be able to get back together and try to have a semblance of my, my life with my family and my and then-girlfriend, now-wife. And got into the mortgage world and started selling, was completely unqualified to be in here, didn't know anything about the mortgage world, didn't know anything about the process, was horrible at math, had to learn that, took me longer than most to be able to be brought up to speed. And so when I met somebody that potentially was interested in getting a loan, refinance or purchase, my entire goal was just to have them come away from the process of just liking me. I didn't even care if I made any money. I just wanted somebody to like me. And what I learned... (laughs) was that in my effort to make sure that they were happy, happy people referred me to other people who wanted to be happy. And so I made them happy. And along the way, I started making a couple of dollars along the way. In fact, it's the process of referral from previous customers that really built my business and helped me teach that to others to build their business. It became... Really, this every customer, every time, no exceptions, no excuses, is that I'm going to take care of you so well that you'll never, ever call someone else the next time you need to refinance, purchase another home, or potentially get money out of your home. You're going to call me first. And maybe I can't help you because maybe the particular product that you want, I don't offer Uh, a home equity line of credit on your home or uh, a reverse mortgage or something else. So from my perspective, I just want you to call me because I want to be that central point of contact for you to to direct you to where you can be. Sometimes my happiest customers, I never did the loan for them, right? I said, no. Or oh, I said, look, it, you could get a better deal if you went over here than you went with me. And even though I made nothing on that customer, I got referrals from that customer. Right. Pretty important for me because I didn't want to spend money on advertising. I didn't have any money to spend on advertising. So I needed to do a good job for you. So you tell me about the people you work with or go to school with or go to church with or that you play softball with. Because that was my form of advertising. And it was cheap, by the way. <laughs> so. I built our company centered around this concept that I would make that that experience so extraordinary. It would be memorable enough for you to be able to refer me to your friends and family.
1: Wow. And through that process over and over and over and over again, it's accumulated into a $25 billion company.
0: That's well, I like to say that, astonishing. You know, this is the 27th year we've been in business. I like to say that we're a 27 year overnight
1: Tell us about some other important leadership philosophies that you have.
0: I'm more interested in doing things properly and right by one another than I am necessarily in making a profit. Now, we have accidentally been a nonprofit organization. It's painful to do that, but we try not to do that too often. But on the other side of the coin, we do a lot to take care of our our customers, and also to our employees. Uh, whenever we do a peer-to-peer panel thing where we talk to other mortgage companies of our size, we always rank number one with the benefits we have for our employees. We have by far the best benefits probably in the industry. People come to work here and say they're going to save four dollars 500 $600 a month on benefits because we pay that instead of them paying that. I won't go down the path of benefits and why I think there should be A medical benefits for everyone because I do think there should be I don't know the process about that Because I think it takes on too much of a political discussion these days I just think that at the end of the day You shouldn't be worried about going to see a doctor because you don't know how you're going to pay for it Right my employees aren't those people we take care of them all Yeah, it makes me feel good about who we are culturally as a company and I like that You can do that when you're a single owner You can do that when there is literally a place where the buck does stop here (laughs) at this desk There's no committee behind me. There's not even a board of directors behind me. I guess the Supreme Court would probably be Teresa, my wife, and beyond that, she doesn't work here, by the way. So, I mean, we we have an extremely strong senior management team. That senior management team helps me make decisions like we are navigating through COVID-19 right now, trying to figure out how to send 2,000 people home and keep them at home and keep them safe. It's hard. It's hard when you've got people that are in a routine of getting up in the morning, and getting in the car and driving to work and working at their desk, and then suddenly they don't do that any longer. They work at their kitchen table. right? And, and the distractions associated with being at home with perhaps your wife or your husband and your kids sometimes are really difficult, a little more distracted than maybe even being at work. What I worry about today, and somebody asked me a couple of weeks ago what keeps me up, and my answer today is different than it ever has been. I worry about losing the camaraderie and culture of what we've built over the last 27 years. I worry that because we are so distant today, so we're connected, but we're not connected like we used to be, where you could come in and see one another. I mean, there's no substitute to face-to-face communication, there's just none. And today I worry about us losing the very essence of who we are, and so we're thinking through ways to communicate with our people more frequently, like this, the video communications, Sending gifts out to our employees at home, little things, but they're not big deals, but just to let them know we're thinking about them. And other things that we're working on to try to make sure that we don't lose this wonderful thing as our, known as our culture, our personality, our company personality. We'll see. We'll see where the market yeah. is. I don't think that there will be a return to normal, by the way. I think this is close to the new normal. And I think we're going to rethink how work is today. The positive side is, Oh my gosh, I must get an an email a week, maybe sometimes more than that of people saying, you have no idea how much better it is for me not to get in my car and drive 45 minutes to an hour each way, how much I'm saving in fuel, how much I'm saving in getting to be with my family and see my husband and my wife and my kids. Yeah, okay, maybe I can't go to Yosemite or to the lake or to the beach or to Hawaii. Maybe that's off a little bit right now. But maybe that's where we should be focusing our energy on kind of pushing things back to the primary family uh, unit. You know what I mean? And that in itself is a positive side of this thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Insightful for sure. For sure. Thank you for sharing some of those uh, challenging times that you overcame. Like That was really cool to hear. And every customer, every time, no exceptions, no excuses. I am proud to let you know I'm at least a three-time customer of yours. At least three, maybe more, but three that I can remember.
0: Everyone needs at least two or three mortgages on their home. We're happy to oblige.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. Indeed. Wow. And uh, to hear the story of uh, Adam, that was really cool. I know he's working with you now
0: yeah he's actually all four of our boys work for the company my oldest son aj actually runs our capital markets uh, as well as our broker dealer side which he started that division i'm pretty proud of him my second son philip is actually my marketing manager so all of this communication the video work uh, the training the multitude of different systems that we deploy to keep in contact with your customer that's his job my third son harrison is actually a president's council, which is our top loan officers. He moved to Boise, Idaho, and he's one of my top loan officers in Boise, Idaho, so loves it out there. And then Adam, my youngest, is down in Southern California. He changed his major from being a firefighter to business with a minor in music, of all things. So he's a today, he's a part-time loan officer, but he wants to finish up his schooling. And then I know he's going to do some things on the production side, on the loan officer side. So, you know, when you're growing a company and I think certainly Bruce can appreciate this and a lot of people can, you know, when you're younger and you're trying to you're early on in your year, in your career and you're trying to balance your home and work life, right? You know, you're, and particularly if you're a young parent, maybe newly married, have a, a new child or two in your family, You're trying to do the things you need to do to get to another level. My focal point, my wife and I, our focal point was trying to do something that would be better for the kids, right? So we were going to sacrifice most of our life to try to make a better life for the kids, not necessarily because they have all this money and don't have to work because they got to work. But I wanted to be able to provide for their kids, which I don't have any grandchildren yet, but to provide for them to be able to go to college and maybe be able to buy their first home and things like that. And so early on when you're working you miss stuff not birthdays and sporting events and christmases and thanksgivings and all that you don't miss that but you miss all like the day-to-day like tuesday through thursday right The just the normal grind of being at home i, I was working late and traveling trying to do my thing and so now that the boys work for the company i get to i missed watching them grow up a little bit personally, but I'm getting this opportunity to watch them grow up professionally. Mm. And it's a wildly different rewarding feeling to have people that you respect in your industry, colleagues, employees, senior level people in your own organization say, hey, I worked with Adam or I worked with Harry or I worked with Phil or I worked with Adam. And oh my God, these kids are something else. My goodness. It does give you a sense of maybe. For a little bit of time, you were a good parent because, you know, you question that along the way. Did I do things right? And yet here I get an opportunity to watch them make decisions in their business life. And I'm just so incredibly proud of them all. Just so incredibly proud of them all.
1: Yeah. Wow. Well, you're certainly building a legacy right there also with uh, your four boys working with you. And I'm sure the future of the company is going to be uh, in large part uh, crafted and created. By them in in, the in, like in the in the right. future, you know, like that's really awesome to hear. And that I, I love what you said about when the buck stops with you, it's a different level of decision making that can happen. It's a different vibe and culture, and that's a lot like what Cutco is like. You know, Cutco is family owned, right, by one family, the Stitz in you Noolian, know, Western New York, and, and they're able to make decisions that. Affect all of us who are you know who, who work directly with the company, and they're able to act in the interest of the individual first, which is something that I feel like is a philosophy that the company has. So the quote I can remember hearing from the CEO is that you know we don't have to make business decisions that affect our people; we can make people decisions that affect our business. Sure, great, great quote. And, I, think uh, that, yeah. I think that was something I also learned early on again from
0: Bruce and. And from Dawn, I was just so surprised how easily and seamlessly business and sort of personal relationships seem to blend so easily. We do that here. No question. I mean, there are there's a business that has to be run here, and sometimes there are tough decisions that need to be made, and you're not going to agree with them all, but I want you to understand them. I need you to, you may say, ah, I wouldn't have done that. Well, okay, fair enough. But I need you to understand why a particular decision was made. And the level of mutual respect, the level of laughter, the level of uh, um, work environment enjoyability, all of those things just seem to meld the two lines of both, you know, business and and personal. And I was so surprised when I, early on watching the relationship between Don and Bruce, I was thinking to myself, man, this is the kind of relationship I'd want to have in my own business if I ever get there someday. I want to feel like going to work is something I love. And then, of course, it's not work, right? You know, I want to be able to go there and do something and make a difference and feel like I am part of something. And I always felt that with, with uh, that, that strong vibe with Don and Bruce. If you think about your life, you're going to be able to rewind that there are there's somewhere in your life, um, there is a teacher or a coach. Who made a profound difference on your life who mm. impacted you and by the way most of the time positively could have impacted you negatively but most of the time positively the truth of the matter is is that they didn't come through your life you may not have learned a lesson that you needed to learn again both positively and negatively clearly bruce was one of those people that came through my life clearly there are people in your life that you can look back upon and say you know what Had it not been for that person taking the extra effort in me, the paying attention to me, when they probably had 300 other things going on, I wouldn't have gotten to where I needed to get to. My dad said something to me a long time ago. He said, whatever you're going through now is preparing you for something in the future. So no matter how difficult things are right now, you're being prepared for something in the future. And I remember going through the time with my son, Adam, thinking, what in the world is this preparing me for? My goodness, my son and my wife are both in the hospital, and I'm broke, broke, broke. I don't have enough money to fill up my tank and gas. I go to call my father on my cell phone back then. My cell phone was turned off because I didn't have enough money to pay my cell phone bill. I mean, it's just, I'm thinking, what could this possibly be teaching me? Well, 1995 taught me how to get through 2008. Right. Right. And interestingly enough, 2008 taught me how to get through what we're going through right now. Hmm. What you're going through right now is going to get you through something else. It's hard to imagine that the coronavirus, the COVID-19, might be preparing us for something even worse, right? Maybe it is, but what you are in the midst of right now is most certainly a lesson. And eyes wide open, learn the lesson. Because when you get presented with that next challenge, those lessons that you've learned today, how to communicate, how to educate, how to console, how to counsel, how to give people faith when they don't think that they can do it, how to make people understand that there may be a different way than what we're accustomed to, either working at home or wearing a mask or washing your hands, all of which may be some things that were not really in our vernacular as recently as six months ago. That's going to take us to another place, and I think that's what my my dad was trying to tell me. And that is, learn
1: these lessons now because they'll serve you well in the future. Hmm, such a great insight, Chris. Like that is uh, something that I feel like everybody needs to hear and it's uh, it's awesome to hear that from someone of your stature and just the the idea that these experiences you went through were preparing you for the next challenges like uh it's it's so so powerful for sure that's awesome awesome what's exciting to you when you look into the future
0: so one of the things was, which has been a concerted effort in our organization is that the, the diversification of my company. So you know, the mortgage industry is kind of an older industry. I think our average age of the people in the industry is about 47 years old. It's dominantly kind of white, elderly men, I guess, is the way to look at it. My predecessor at the Mortgage Bankers Association, the chairman in front of me, said that the mortgage industry is male, pale, and stale. And so, <laughs> I think he's right about that. So we're doing a significant effort in a number of different fronts. First of all, my focal point on making sure that I intern younger people into this industry, certainly by way of my own children, but of course, a number of other people that I think will be the future, not only of our company, but again, of our industry and frankly, our country. Uh, Secondly, I think that we've taken a very focused effort on making sure that the leadership of this organization is representative of the customers that we serve, not just folks that are female, which more than 50% of our senior leadership team is, but people of color, I mean, think about this. In the state of California, the minority is now the majority. That's true in Nevada. That's true in Arizona. It's probably true in Texas. It will be true in other parts of the country. I think people like doing business with people that they can relate to. And so I think it's critically important that we focus our efforts in diversifying our company. We also put a lot of focus on making sure that we're helping those first-time home buyers, people that never thought that they would ever be able to afford a home with some creative programs Not creative programs that are good for the lender, but creative programs that are good for the buyer and the borrower. So Mm -hmm. for instance, we've created a mechanism to people who could crowdsource their down payment. Something like 82% of all the people that are getting married nowadays have lived together before they got married. So they already own all the stuff, right? So they own the, the toaster or the panini machine and all that other thing. And so what we've decided to do is harness the power of social media and that crowdsourcing To be able to help people come up with a down payment, not to barely have them scrape together the down payment, but to realistically help them put down more than the minimum down payment of three, four, or 5%. Because of this, our customers are putting down double, if not triple, what the minimum down payment is because, again, they're harnessing the power of that social network of theirs. In the younger generation, in my opinion, Their social network is their social net worth. That's where their real power is in helping them be able to become homeowners. Secondly, we're putting together a program. I'm using some of the the relationships that I have at Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and the Department of Education and some of my relationship that I have in Congress and Senate and the White House. So many people are unable to buy a home today because they have other debt and it's largely centered around student debt. So some of the things that we're trying to do is say, hey, listen, if somebody buys a house, Why can't we let them keep their student debt payment low so that they can begin to buy something that has the possibility and more likely the probability of appreciating? And at some point in the future, as their income picks up, eight to 10 years into their career, there's usually a pretty big jump in most people's income. At that point, maybe they can start paying down more aggressively their student debt. But why should we box somebody out, particularly a young person, out when they are just starting out in life when they've been saddled with 50 or 80 or a hundred thousand dollars worth of student debt it's not correcting the problem the problem is is a broader discussion about why why college is so expensive for young people today but that's a different conversation Mm -hmm. because listen if you're coming from a family that didn't own a home It's really difficult for you to borrow from the equity to pay for your son or daughter's education. So I got to break that cycle. I got to figure out a way to give people who have never owned a home the opportunity to be able to buy a home sensibly, correctly, and and be able to actually afford to buy a home. Those ideas, by the way, implemented by me are designed and come from a younger
1: generation's viewpoint. That's so awesome that you are really striving to see someone else's perspective it really says a lot about you chris and listen i could talk to you all day this has been awesome and i really want to be respectful of the time that you have are there any other words of wisdom that you would like to share with the audience today so it probably won't surprise you i'm i'm the
0: glass half full guy right i'm optimistic to the end i'm if you're ever you're down Call me. I'm the guy that's going to tell you it's going to be okay. And I do think it's going to be okay. I think if anything, what this, what this pandemic is teaching us is that life is pretty fragile. Mm-hmm. That Maybe the most valuable commodity you own is time. It may be the only thing you actually really own. Mm-hmm. It's the thing that is running out. When it's done, it's done. And you never have enough of it. And I can tell you in your own career and in your listener's career, you're going to encounter two segments of your world, your career and your lifetime that deal with time. The first one is this. Stop wasting your time you waste your time you just do you're either in the wrong place at the wrong time stop doing that if you're in the wrong job then go get the job you're supposed to do if you want to perform on broadway then focus on performing on broadway if you want to start your own company then quit waiting around and do it i did it and didn't have a penny to my name people say well how'd you fund your your mortgage company i said visa that's that's how i got my <laughs> how i did it. i sold everything to keep the company alive. And liquidated everything I had. And yeah, I get it. Some companies fail. But you know what? That's just another lesson. Get up and brush yourself off and, and get back into the game, you know? So the truth of the matter is stop wasting your time. And at some point in your career, you're young. But at some point in your career, you're going to get the choice to stop other people from wasting your time. And you do that today. In some cases, you have to. It's just part of your career. You're going to have to go through some things to be able to get to another place. But if you can get to a point in your life where you're no longer wasting your time and you're not letting other people wasting your time, then you're making the most of your time because here's the deal. The deal is some guy went to work at his job that he's been going to for 22 years at the port in Beirut, Lebanon yesterday or the day before just doing his regular job, whatever that job is. And yet he didn't come home. And believe me, I'm telling you, he didn't say, hey, today's the last day. Nobody does. There was a a study done a few years ago that said, if you could know the time and the place and the how, would you like to know how you're going to die? 86% of the people said, no, no, (laughs) I don't want to know. And the reason I don't want to know, because I'm going to live my life differently. I'm going to do something differently. I want to wring everything I can out of my life. And whenever my time comes, my time comes. And that'll take me to the last story I'll give to you. So both my mom and my dad passed away in 2014, about five months aside from one another. It represents the worst year that I've ever had in my entire life. It will always represent the worst year in my entire life. My father, he suffered from dementia and a number of other issues toward the end of his life. And so for the majority of the time that we would spend together, the last 60 or 90 days, my dad would be asleep. So my routine was I'd go to work, here, leave here about four thirty. Drive up to Martinez to my family home. Sit with my dad for two or three hours. Sometimes he would be sleeping the entire time. The particular time I'm sitting there on the couch watching TV, and my father wakes up, and he he hadn't been a hundred percent there for months, months. And I don't know what it was about this particular time, but he literally woke up out of, out of a deep sleep, and he said, "Do you remember the time that we went up to your brothers and sisters and your mother and I went up to Fallen Leaf Lake?" And I said, "Yeah." And he goes, remember time we cut those fish? And I said, I do. And the story he's relating is my father was an avid fisherman. We would go to one vacation every year. was a place outside of Tahoe called Fallen Leaf Lake. It was right. the only place we went every year. And did that well before I was born, up until my 20s, we would do that. And so one year when we were all little, my dad's routine was wake us all up super early, give us some hot cocoa and a and a thermos, and we would all hike our way up to the same place and we would all fish next to this bridge and this pool of this river, this kind of deep um, little pool area, and we would never ever catch anything. But we <laughs> did it every year because that was the routine. This particular year, we're sitting there and it's we're cold and we're drinking our cocoa and waiting for this whole episode to end. You can hear this rumbling of this vehicle coming up, and this giant truck pulls up on the bridge. It looks kind of like a like kind of like a small cement truck. We're all looking up, and the driver gets out, and he walks to the back of the truck and takes this, like this chute that you see on the back of the cement truck, and he swings it over to the edge of the the bridge, and he pulls this lever. And at that moment, he stocks that river with 10,000 hungry trout. I mean, we caught our limit is (laughs) it was so ridiculous at one point my brother mike was going out into the stream and just throwing fish up onto the up onto the bank and we have these pictures of all of us with with just dozens of fish on these streamers and my father couldn't stop laughing that was the story that he remembered a couple of weeks before he passed away the lesson taught me two things. One, I think at the end of our lives, it's not really about what we made or what we bought, what we owned. I think it's those moments of memorable moments that stick with us forever. That certainly was his memory. Uh, The other lesson that I'll leave you with is that when you catch that many trout early on in a vacation, you have trout for breakfast. You have-
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. That's so funny. That is great. Chris, you know, Bruce for many years has talked about you. Like it, it's come out from time to time and you know, he's talked about the old days and, and your name has come up. And of course, uh, when, when Adam worked with us, I know, uh, Ben, his manager, got a chance to talk to you. And, and I had always heard like, just how amazing you are and all the great stories that you have to tell and insights that you have. And I, I don't even know if I quite got it until today. I really, really appreciate you making this time today. Thank you for all the great stuff you've shared, all the stories, all the ideas, all the concepts. Congratulations on the incredible success that you've achieved and the family that you have and the legacy that you are leaving not just through your family, but through your company and through all the insights that you share with the world. It's clear that you're an incredible leader, an incredible human being. So thanks so much for making time for the podcast. That's very nice of you to say thanks for
0: inviting me. If you want me back, I'll come up with uh, a couple of more Bruce Goodman stories along the way. And I'll tell you, it's, uh, you're fortunate to have him as a leader. He's certainly one of a kind and a very, very dear friend.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Thanks very much. Thanks,
0: Dan. Talk to you soon.
1: All I can say about that conversation is, wow, I am left stunned at the insights, the charisma, just the amazing ideas and stories that Chris George has to share, how we talk ourselves out of things in life. That was compelling. Learning to focus on the now, on the next steps that he shared from SEALs training, being really curious. Being really curious as an individual, that genuine interest in people and curiosity is such a great trait. And I feel like little kids have it. My three-year-old has it all the time, always asking questions. What's this? Why? Right? And that tends to get squelched as we get older and older. We become embarrassed sometimes to ask. We wonder what people will think of us, right? But we don't want to miss our opportunities and curiosity, interest open up the doors, the idea of making people happy through your work, right? Building good feelings in people that you do business with and how that leads to referrals and how it creates a snowball of business. You might not make the most profit today in the moment, but in the long run, you can become uber successful as Chris George has through that process. And the idea that the difficulties we experience are preparing us for the future. That is the most constructive meaning to give to anything that happens in our lives that's challenging. And I just thought it was so awesome when Chris said that what you're in the midst of right now is most certainly a lesson. And think about that, take that in, maybe journal on that concept a little bit today. Remember this conversation. Remember Chris George. I just thought that was a fantastic and amazing conversation with a lot of great insights. I'm grateful that you've taken the time to listen to this episode and look forward to uh, sharing more stories with you next time. Have an awesome rest of your day. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode of Changing Lives Selling Knives, please consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player and hit the subscribe button so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives.